Well, let's open your Bibles again to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Working our way very slowly through this chapter as it's worthy of it. It's been called the greatest chapter in the Bible. We could argue about that all we wanted, but um, there's no doubt that it certainly is a powerful chapter and dense with theological truth. Today we're going to be looking at this passage, but we're going to be springboarding into some other places. This is a very important theological point in Paul's argument in the book of Romans. It's going to take us to a lot of places in the scripture, so I hope you keep the spines of your Bibles kind of oiled up. Follow along as I read verses 8 through 9. Paul says, however, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if... Indeed, the Spirit of God dwells in you, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to God. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. I was recently at a conference with a few other speakers and during the the afternoon session of the conference, they had a time where the, the speakers were gathered on stage and it was a panel discussion. It was a time of Q&A. They, the audience could ask questions and, and the moderator was asking us questions as well. Well, toward the end of that, the moderator decided to ask a few questions that he wanted some perspective from the three pastors who were sitting on that, that panel. I was uh, um, intrigued to hear these questions. One of the questions he asked was especially alarming And to be frank, I haven't stopped thinking about it since that panel discussion just a few weeks ago. This was his question. He wanted all three of the men to respond to this. He said, what is your greatest fear and or concern about the health of the church in general and the health of your church in particular? What's your greatest fear, your greatest concern about the health of of evangelicalism in general, what's the greatest fear you have about the health of your church in particular? Well, I have to confess, as the other men were providing their answers, I was the third to answer this, I was pretty distracted. I don't even remember what they said, to be honest. I was thinking about, first of all, what my answer was going to be, and then once I landed on my answer, I was disturbed and distracted thinking about what my answer actually was. My turn came to answer And he said, Rick, what what do you think the greatest, uh, what's your greatest fear or concern about your church at Mission Road or the church in general? And I just simply said, people who think they're believers who are not. Said another way, false professors with false professions. Nothing frightens me anymore. Nothing makes my skin crawl with chills Like the concept, the idea, the possibilities that someone could sit in our church day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, decade after decade, with a false assurance 
of salvation. This is a significant concern in the New Testament. Now, I want to take you to a couple of passages because I want you to see how important this concern is in the, in the mind of our Lord and of the apostles. Turn back for a moment to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew 7. You know this passage very well. We've referenced it many times. He begins, the Lord does, in the climax of the, the Sermon on the Mount... Let's pick it up in verse 13. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. It's quite a statement. This is the Lord Jesus actually affirming that there will likely be more people who end up in hell than in heaven. Then he says this, beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Add that to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew 25. It's a parable that most of you are familiar with. Matthew 25, verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five of them were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the prudent took oil and flasks along with their lamps. Now, while the bridegroom was delaying... They all got drowsy and began to sleep. At midnight, there was a shout. Behold, the bridegroom come out to meet him. Then all those virgins who rose and trimmed their lamps, then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the prudent, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, no, there will be not enough for us and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast. And the door was shut. Later, the other virgins also came saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. But he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. 
Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. From the lips of the Lord Jesus himself came this alarming, disturbing possibility that someone would not be ready when he returns. Someone would think they had more time to get ready. Someone would think they were ready. They, they would actually address him as Lord, both the passages, but not a true profession. This really raises the idea that's very uncomfortable for some people, and that is, do you need to, should you, ask yourself whether you're truly saved or not? Should you question your salvation? Listen to what Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. And then the, the most penetrating passage of all that really relates to what we're looking at in this passage in Romans 8, 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Test yourselves. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test? If these verses make you feel uncomfortable, it may be because you're taking sin too lightly. It's not always bad to be uneasy before a holy God. It's very good, even for the converted, to be uneasy before the fact that we are in a relationship with a true and a living and a holy and a righteous God. It's important to remember how Paul gets to this passage, now we're back in Romans 8. Remember in Romans 7, he, he, he talks about, well, let's back up. In Romans 6, he says, you've been declared righteous. You're slaves no longer of sin. Now you're slaves to righteousness, which sounds simple enough. Which raises the question, if that's true, why do I still sin? So in chapter 7, he outlines this, this, this personally. He moves from third person, from first person uh, to, to first person and talks about himself. He says, let me tell you about me. The, the good things that I want to do that I know I should do, wow, I find myself not doing them. And then he flips the coin. In fact, the things that I don't want to do that I shouldn't do, I actually find myself doing those things. And then he self-condemns himself and says, oh, wretched man that I am, who could possibly deliver me from this body of death? You can't miss this hinge verse that really captures the essence of chapter, eight, chapter seven and introduces us into chapter eight. Romans chapter eight, verse one. Therefore, there is now no condemnation O wretched man, O condemned man that I am. There's none of that. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now I'll tell you that to, to, to remind you that this chapter is intended to provide comfort, to provide assurance, to say be, be encouraged, embattled saint. If you know that battle, that's a good thing. If you feel the guilt of that, that leaning of your soul away from God, that's a good thing. If you see the things that you want to do that you're not doing and you're doing the things that you don't want to do, that's a good thing. As long as it's something that you hate and wrestle with, frustrated by. Paul says, let me encourage you to have that struggle 
indicates, it's a good indication that you, you've experienced the grace of God and there's no condemnation for you. And then he goes on in chapter 8 and says, but I want to make sure that those of you who I'm trying to give assurance for should be assured. In, in other words, if you have come to the point, if any of us have come to the point where we just get a little uneasy saying, well, I, I'm not really sure where I stand, that's okay. And listen, it's always okay to ask hard questions of the Lord. It's not okay not to find the answers in Scripture. And this passage provides some very clear answers. I hope you noticed as I was reading it, I highlighted a certain word. It's a conditional phrase. You know this word very well. What's the word? If. It shows up four times in this passage. If, if, if. Life is full of conditional situations. Uh, I uh, was just recently on a, a long 18-hour flight. And I, the, the way they have you walk into these flights is so cruel. It's cruel and unusual. Because you walk into this big 747 or this big Airbus. And you have to turn to the right. Or at least I have to turn to the right. But if you just look over to the left, you see business class. Which is first class, business class. And there's these, there are these seats that, that fold into beds. They're, they're giant like thrones with sound systems and headphones. And, and then you see them before they even take off and they're bringing people cheese and crackers and chocolate and giving them foot massages and everything else. Okay, maybe not foot massages. But I just look like a little kid, you know, who's hungry looking inside a bakery when I'm, when I'm walking by there. I just walk and I look over to the left and look at all of those and, and think, wow, that's... It would be great to be up there. And you know what? I could go up there if I had a business class ticket, right? If you don't have the business class ticket, you can't. They even know your name up there. Hello, Mr. James. Because they're looking at, they want to make sure. That, uh, uh, they make you think that it's personal, but they're really just making sure that you're, you're not one of the guys like me who have tried to go up there and just sit there. Oh, of course I belong here. You don't belong there. I don't belong there. If is a big word, isn't it? You can write up there if you have a ticket. Most of our life is built on conditionality, on conditional clauses. You can do certain things if. You can't do certain things if not. Well, this passage is structured around four Ifs, never, ever, ever underestimate the power of a conditional clause in the scripture. If the word if shows up in the passage, you better take notes. You better look carefully. And there are four of them in these three verses. So as we look at this, we're going to look at four tests for truly belonging to Christ. These are four tests that are all outlined by the word if. Paul could not be more clear. You belong to Christ if. You have the Spirit of God if. So he gives us four tests. He tells us in 2 Corinthians, 5, uh, 2 Corinthians 13 to test ourselves. How can we test ourselves to see if we're in the faith? Tests all over the scripture. The whole book of 1 John is fundamentally a test. But in this passage, we find four simple tests, all related to the Spirit of God. Let's look at these together. Four tests for truly belonging to Christ. The first is in verse 9. Inhabitation 
by the Spirit. Being indwelt. In habitation by the Spirit. Verse 9. However, stop right there. Where does this this connect to? He just talked about the difference we looked at in our last study about being in in the flesh or being in the Spirit. By being dominated by the Spirit of God or dominated by your own desires and your own flesh. He says in verses um, 7 and 8, the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. It does not subject itself to the law of God. It's not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. He's talking about a group of people who are dominated by their fleshly desires, who are unbelievers, who cannot please God. Please understand, he says next, however you. Now this is important. Don't miss one. He's saying, In in opposition, in contrast to those who are not believers, I'm talking to you who are believers. And then he says, make sure you test yourself. You see that? However, you, and then he gives us a series of ifs. However, you are not in the flesh, that's the contrast to the people he just described, but in the spirit. And then what's the next word? If, if. Indeed, the Spirit of God dwells in you. First, notice that Paul turns from speaking in the third person to speaking in first person. He's direct address, you. He speaks specifically to his readers, you. With this word, however, he draws that distinction between unbelievers and the believers who are reading the book of Romans to whom he is speaking. It's a contrast. He's contrasting them with the ones he wrote about back. Look at chapter 7, verse 5. We are not in the flesh, while we are we're in the flesh, rather, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. He says, that's the way we used to be. We used to be those who walked according to our own desires, those who walked according to the flesh. Verse 6. But now we have been released from the law, having died to to that by which we were bound to serve in newness of the spirit and not in oldness of the letter. What he's saying is that if you're trying to please God in the power of the flesh by doing, applying morality and moral principles, you're never going to be pleased. God is never going to be impressed. Now look specifically at this verse. You are not in the flesh. That means controlled by the desires of unredeemed humanness, but in the spirit. Then he says, indeed, if the Spirit of God, see that designation, Spirit of God, dwells in you. Now, we're going to meet the Spirit of God in a lot of different ways in this chapter. We've already said he's mentioned over 20 times times in this chapter, only uh, once before this. He's called, in verses 4, 5, 6, 9, 10, 13, and 16, he's called just simply the Spirit. He's called the Spirit of God in verse 9, verse 14, also by reference in verse 11. He's called the Spirit of Christ in verse 9. He's called Christ in you also in verse 9. But look at the test. You're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. How do you know you're in the Spirit? Then he says, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. It's a pretty simple test, isn't it? You know you're not a believer if the Spirit of God dwells, lives in, minnowed, takes up residence, abides in takes up permanent structural resonance in you. How can you tell if the Spirit of God has taken up residence 
within you? It's a good question, isn't it? I mean, if it's all dependent, if I'm going to heaven or not, dependent on whether the Spirit of God dwells in me, we ought to know what it looks like, feels like, sounds like if the Spirit of God lives in us. Well, in order to understand that, you've got to go comb the, the pages of, of the New Testament and it just dances off the page. Let me give you some, some brief descriptions. How can you tell the Spirit of God dwells in you? Well, let me give you one, two, three, four. Let me give you five. First, knowing and loving Jesus. You know and you have a love for Jesus. John chapter 16, verse 14, Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit comes, when the paraclete, the helper comes, he will glorify me. So if the Spirit of God is resident in us, we have a, an affection for, a love for, a desire to know the Lord Jesus. It's very specific. It's not just God. It's not just that athlete at the end of the game who says, I want to thank God. I, I appreciate his sentiment. But you want to see people get in trouble? Mention the word Jesus. And then you instantly have a divide. Here it says the Holy Spirit his primary ministry is to promote Jesus. So if he lives inside us, what do you think the leaning and the inclination of a heart is toward? Jesus. Let's say it another way. No love for Jesus, no desire to know Jesus, no centrality of Jesus in your life could indicate no salvation. Because if the Spirit of God lives in you, that's what he does. Secondly, conviction of sin. John 16, again, verses 8 to 11, talk about the Holy Spirit comes. He's going to convict the world of sin. He'll convict everyone of sin and righteousness. If there's no conviction of sin, there is no way that the Spirit of God abides in that soul. It's just, it's just impossible. How in the world can the living God, the God of the universe, exist and live in and dwell in a heart that also loves, pursues, and entertains sin with no conviction? It's very clear. We've looked at this over the last few weeks. Another indication that the Spirit of God indwells you is you have the fruit of the Spirit. You have the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, things like these. We'll, we'll see this again in a few verses. If the Spirit of God abides and lives in you, it changes you. You say, does it change me perfectly? No. But here's another subtest of that. When you see that the change isn't there and you're, you're told about it, it's brought to your attention, you're, you're convicted. You're, your soul hates that. You, you want to respond to that and repent of that. The fruit of the Spirit. If the Spirit of God is in you, it makes a difference. He changes you. A fourth indication. Adoption by God and affection for God. Adoption by God and affection for God. Now, I want to be careful here because this, this is, this is the, the subjective element, as it were. You say, what do you mean the subjective element? Listen to what Paul says to the Galatians in Galatians 4, verse 6. He says, because you are sons of God, God has sent forth the spirit of his son... Into our hearts, crying, 
Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. If that's not clear, look in chapter 8, just down the, down the page at verse 14. We'll get here in a few weeks. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. Here's that subjective element. The Spirit of God actually messes around in your life. He changes you. He leads you. He causes you to think differently, speak differently, respond differently. He leads us. If for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God, for you do not receive have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons. Here's our phrase again, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. You know, there's so much talk today about the subjective leading of the Holy Spirit. Does he tell you which car to buy, which person to marry? Does he tell you which house to buy? No. But there is something that happens in the heart where the Spirit of God testifies that we are sons and daughters of God. There is something subjective that happens. Can I say it this way? You don't feel the same. You don't feel great all the time. You have moments of doubt and discouragement and despair. But you know that God is with you. If the Spirit of the living God indwells us, there must be a massive, demonstrable, noticeable, effective change in who we are. Wouldn't you agree with that? How can the God of the universe invade the human soul and there be no change? Impossible. We're inhabited by the Spirit. We're going to come back to this inhabitation, this dwelling in the Spirit later in Romans 8. So just hold that in your minds. Number two, a second test for truly belonging to Christ does the Spirit of God inhabit you? We could ask another question. Does he possess you? Possession by the Spirit. Possession, ownership by the Spirit. Look in the middle of verse 9. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. This idea of possession, of ownership. This verse has two dimensions. Possession of the Spirit of God by the believer and position Possession of the believer by the Spirit of God. It works both ways in English and in Greek. There's this belonging factor. Now, this is, this is interesting in, in our study of pneumatology. You know what the study of pneumatology is, right? Study of the Holy Spirit. I want to show you something that we looked at probably three years ago in the Gospel of John that's so super critically important for you to understand in reference to the Trinity. Look at how the Spirit of God is referenced here. He's called the Spirit of What's it say? Christ. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. Now instantly you should say to hang on. How does that possessive, that genitive relationship work? You say, what is a genitive relationship? Is it the Spirit of Christ, like Christ owns the Holy Spirit? Or is it the Spirit of Christ, meaning it's the Spirit that is Christ's? It's Jesus' actual Spirit. Well, don't split hairs. Turn back over to John chapter 14. Told you we'd be turning a few passages this morning. John chapter 14. Because this is the most wonderfully, theologically accurate, yet logically convoluted, wonderful passage on the Trinity in my estimation in the whole, in the whole New Testament. Look at verse 16. John chapter 14, 
Let's pick it up in verse 16. He's talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit. Now, I want, I want you to watch who is coming, who is Jesus promising is going to come. He says, when I leave, my physical presence is going to be with you, uh, away from you. I'm going to go back to heaven after the ascension, and I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. Who is he talking about? He says, I, verse 16, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another paraclete, the one who comes alongside you, another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth. Okay, got it, Jesus. We're talking about the Holy Spirit. Tracking with you. Whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides, there's our word, dwells with you and will be in you. There's our same concept. So Jesus says, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. He's going to be with you, in you, permanently abide uh, with you. The Spirit of God is coming. Check. Jesus, the the Son of God, is going to go be by the Father uh, in heaven. They're going to be there. The Spirit's going to be with me. Clear enough. Not exactly. Then Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. Is that because you're going to send the Holy Spirit? No. Next phrase. I will come to you. Time out. Jesus, you're leaving. You don't want to leave us alone as orphans, so you're going to send the Holy Spirit, right? Yes. Is that it? No. Also, I will come to you. How will he do that? What is the Holy Spirit called in Romans 8? The Spirit of Christ. You see some overlap? Oh, it gets more After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live. You will live also in that day. You will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. Look at this. And I will love him and I will disclose myself to him. Jesus says, I will reveal, disclose myself to you after my physical presence is gone from the earth. So he's sending the Spirit. He's going to come. He's going to reveal himself to us, okay? Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, then what has happened that you're going to disclose yourself to us and not the world? Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will love him. (sighs) Look at the next phrase. My Father, Jesus, me and my Father, and we will come to him And make our abode with him. So let me give you a pop quiz theologically. If the spirit, if if, if God dwells with you, is that the Father? Or is that the Son? Or is that the Holy Spirit? Or is it letter D? All the above. That's important. Now go back to Romans chapter 8. Because we see here in Romans 8... He's talking about the Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. And now he, he, he pops this on us. The Spirit of Christ. It shouldn't surprise us. Just listen. Acts 16, 7. After they come to uh, uh, Mycia, the, they were trying to go to Bithynia. And the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. That's back in the book of Acts. Philippians 1, 19. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers, and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus. 1 Peter 1.11, seeking to know what kind of person or time the the prophets were talking about. They were looking for the, the time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating and predicting the sufferings of Christ. Listen, don't 
be careful of modalism. You know what modalism is, right? It's a theological error that thinks that it's three gods. If this feels, if this sounds confusing, you're probably pretty accurate. So who is the Holy Spirit? He's God. Is God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Yes. So how do you divide those up? I don't know. I don't know how that works. John 14 is great. I'm gonna send the Spirit, check. I'm gonna come to you, okay. My Father and I will dwell with you, okay. So I prefer to think of it as the permanent abiding presence of God. When you think of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, it's the permanent abiding presence of God. The Trinity. Now, that's all just to say that Spirit, that God, look back at the text, has a possession relationship with believers. We belong to Him. And if you don't have the Spirit of Christ, if you don't have the permanent abiding presence of God with you, you do not belong to Him. Thirdly, a third test for true faith. Conviction by the Spirit. We've already mentioned this. This is a a further iteration of that. Verse 10, if Christ is in you. Isn't that interesting? He moves from the Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, to now Christ in you. So is it Jesus or is it the Holy Spirit? Yes, it's even the Father. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. The, the, the spirit here has caused a lot of commentators a lot of heartburn. Is he talking about the Holy Spirit here or is he talking about our spirit? I, I tend to think he's talking about our spirit because he's talking about a contrast between the body and the spirit. It's the inside and the outside, the immaterial and the material. That's what he's speaking of here. The spirit is the inside of us in contrast to the body, which is the physical, the outside of us. Even though death is inevitable because of sin, that's why we have the body being dead here. The Holy Spirit has made us, literally declared us, as we've looked at over and over in Romans, righteous before God and there is no reason to fear death. The Spirit is alive because of righteousness. Here's the question. Here's the test. Is there a legitimate pursuit of righteousness in our lives? That's the test. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the inside of you, the spirit is alive, you're not declining toward hell and toward, toward, toward permanent death because of righteousness. Let me ask you a question. What makes you alive? What makes you feel alive this passage is so clear. What ought to animate you most, excite you at the deepest core, ramp you up, get you going, get your juices flowing, is the pursuit of righteousness. You say, ah, I wish that was the case. And I see, I see some fruit of that, but but not like I want to. You have to ask yourself, am I in Romans 7 fighting it or am I not fighting it? 
Is your spirit really alive because of righteousness? Is your life defined by trying, applying effort to be righteous, to pursue righteousness, and to put away and to put off sin? No, we're not talking about perfection. John says, if anyone says he he has no sin, he calls God a liar. We're not talking about perfection. We're talking about direction, progress. Do you have a hatred? Somewhere in your soul, do you have a hatred towards sin? And do you have a love for, a desire for righteousness? And not just a righteousness that Matthew 6 says can be seen before other men. Do you have a a desire for righteousness that's, That brings you pleasure because you know God sees and knows and smiles. Is it between you and God? Is there conviction by the Spirit of unrighteousness, motivation by the Spirit toward righteousness? Is your spirit alive because of righteousness? Or is your spirit, the inside of you, alive? Does what make does what gets you most excited? Is it sinful or is it righteous? That's what he's saying. What's your life defined by? And fourthly, you know this is coming, transformation by the Spirit. We come to the fourth if in this passage. But, verse 11, if the Spirit of Him, another, de- another designation of Spirit of God, but if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. Now, let's just stop right there. Isn't it interesting that when Paul talks about the change that we're gonna have, he, he's done this over and over. Back in chapter three, he did it. In chapter four, he did it. He goes back and he grabs the most powerful thing that ever happened in the world, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And says what God did in raising him from the dead, that power is what animates the righteous pursuits of a believer. But If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. You got that? If God who raised Jesus from the dead lives inside you. He can't even say it once. He says it twice. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. You say, this is an interesting question. Theologians, it was just fun to read the, the commentators this week who battle over this. Is he talking about sanctification or is he talking about glorification? When he says that the, 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 the power of God, the power of the resurrection will give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you, is he talking about that day when we'll have be glorified and we'll have bodies that will be transformed into eternal? Or is he talking about today and what's going on in pursuing our sanctification? And the answer is yes. He's going to bounce back and forth between glorification and sanctification in the entire rest of the chapter. Paul returns to that causal power. What causes change in our lives? It's the resurrection of Jesus. Let me say it. We've said it over and over. Let me say it as simple as I can. The resurrection of Jesus is the most important event in the history of the world. Now, I know you're tempted to say, no, it's the cross. Well, we can combine those together. 
But if Jesus died on a cross and there was no resurrection, he was just another crucified criminal. Read the book of Acts over and over and over. It's about the resurrection of the dead. It's about being raised from the dead. It's about Jesus rising out of the grave. Yes, there's the cross, but the accent is on the resurrection. Paul was put on trial four times. You know what he's put on trial for? Jerusalem and uh, Felix and Festus and Agrippa. All four times. You know why he was put on trial? For believing and preaching two things. That God raised Jesus from the dead and that he will raise believers from the dead as well. My question to my own heart is, is that the signature of my gospel understanding? Is it the resurrection? I love, I love singing about the cross. I love thinking about the cross. But I want to be honest. Sometimes I wonder if if those thoughts are somehow incomplete without the fact that, yes, he died. Yes, he died. Yes, he died. But Sunday came. He rose from the dead. Here we discover that it was the Spirit of God who is at work. You want to get into the inner workings of the Trinity. This is so interesting. It's kind of fun. So, what was it that went into the corpse? Jesus was laying in, the, in that grave, in that tomb, that, that hewn stone. What was it? What happened when he, his heart started beating and his, his blood started flowing and, and he, he took the, the face mask off and he rose up and sat? What happened? You know what happened? The Holy Spirit, it says so right here, the Holy Spirit went into that cave and woke him up. Resurrected him. I love the fact that it's repeated twice. He could have said it once. Paul says it twice. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Again, we're back to the indwelling spirit of God that has a transforming effect on a believer. It's the transformative promise of God to the believer, both eschatologically and privately, presently. You know, there's no limit to the comfort that that verse can bring, the assurance that that verse can bring. If death is taken care of, how do we know death is taken care of? Because he he raised Jesus from the grave and he promises us to to do that for us. If that's taken care of, what really is there to be concerned about in this present age? I understand. I'm not, I'm not cold and sensitive. We have problems. We have issues. We have trials. We have troubles. We have death. We have, we have sickness that we deal with in, in, uh, in our friends and our family. But if our eternity is settled, if this promise is true, which it is, he will give life to our mortal bodies now and then, if he dwells in us now and then. So what were we complaining about? Are we envoys of grace for other, even in the midst of our trials and difficulties and circumstances? Or, or do we need to live in this verse? Look down at verse 39. I can't wait to get to this last section in Romans 8. 
He talks about, well, go back to 37. We overwhelmingly conquer in all these things. Go back to verse 33. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? It's a great question. Who's going to mess with us? Who's going to condemn us? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather who was raised. Isn't it interesting we find the resurrection again? Who's at the right hand of God? Who's praying for us, interceding for us? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation? No. Distress? No. Persecution? Famine? Nakedness? Peril? Sword? No. Just as is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I'm convinced, this is it, that neither death. You can just stop right there, couldn't you? Death. Neither death nor life nor angels or principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth, nor any other created things will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He lives in with the believer and he transforms us. So here's the question. Are you inhabited by the Spirit? Do you possess a relationship with him and does he possess you? Are you convicted by the power of the spirit in your heart against sin? And do you recognize transformation in your mortal body where you are actually becoming more conformed to the image of Jesus? It's all about if. This passage should give us pause. If, if the Spirit of God is present and at work in your life, you are a son of God, a daughter of God. And yet, but if he is not there and there's no evidence of his work, I just want to beg you, don't be a part of that group I was asked about and on that panel discussion. What are you most afraid of? I'm most afraid that there could be some who act like Christians on the outside but have no spirit of God who dwells within them. I'm not questioning your salvation. I'm asking you to. I'm not applying the test. I'm asking you to. Do you have a relationship with the Spirit of God, with the permanent abiding presence of God in your life? He's far too powerful to indwell you with no evidence. Would you bow with me, please? I know this is a heavy sermon, a heavy passage. And yet it's God's word. 
Test yourself to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourself. Or do you not recognize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you? He dwells in you unless, indeed, you fail the test. My greatest fear is that someone, anyone, who is underneath the ministry of Mission Road Bible Church would go to the judgment, get all the way there, convinced that they were converted, only to hear, depart from me, I never knew you. Please, please test yourself. Father, your presence convicts us. I beg you, please, convict hearts that need conviction. Comfort hearts that need comforting. Don't let this day pass without us considering the power of what you said in the simple word, if. In a minute, I'm gonna say amen. The prayer will be open to my right. Mike will be over there if we can pray with you, for you. We can find another place in the church during the Sunday school hour to talk and pray if you want to. Please don't let this day pass. If God is speaking into your heart, run to the cross. Sprint. Don't walk. Lord, help us to apply the test and to grade the test. We ask this because of your goodness and your grace. Amen.